as of this morning, I woke up thinking about this, and I believe that I have some very rock-solid answers to the so-called objections. So, what I want to do today is review briefly what the Bible does say. What is rock-solid, unequivocal, it's there. It says it, and it means it. Then we can get down to the objections and some of those scriptures that were raised and what might be the answer to them, since what happened, happened. And it is stated as such as having happened that way. And if the Bible states it happened that way, then it happened that way. So there has to be an answer then to the scriptures and thoughts that would seem to say that it shouldn't have happened that way. And they, in that sense, deserve an answer. There can't be contradiction. What it does say clearly, it means. So what is the answer to those other things? Let's go, first of all, to Leviticus 23. And I want to review here what it does say. And again, uh, some supposition or assumption that people took from what it says without putting the whole thing together. Leviticus 23, and it begins to speak specifically of Pentecost in verse 10. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you become into the land which I give you. So this is something that is to be applied when they come into the land. Now we did see in Deuteronomy 12 last year, last year, last week, that... uh, He gave some instruction in Deuteronomy 12 that was to be carried out, but that particular instruction is specified to have been after their enemies were driven out, after they had achieved peace. In other words, certain things, and when God had uh, designated a location among their tribes, those were things that he clearly said they were to do after certain events had occurred. So Deuteronomy 12 is not germane to this discussion on the actual counting of Pentecost because the events there were for some time after they went in. Notice the contrast here, though. It says, when you come into the land, and it doesn't give any explanation. It just says, when you do it. So I would assume that that would mean as immediately as possible. And I can prove that that's not an assumption, but it is what God intended to the day and in the way that he states it here. So when you come into the land, that's the when, and shall reap the harvest thereof, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, they were to reap the harvest that was in the land, that is clear from this verse, And he calls it your harvest. Now, one of the objections that we'll get to is that uh, this wasn't their harvest. They hadn't planted it. They hadn't, at this point, reaped it. Uh, So, they couldn't have used the Canaanite grain from that year. We'll get to that. So, just hold that in abeyance in your mind until we get there. 
it does have a logical answer. <clears throat> so when they come in, they will offer a sheaf of the first fruits. And he shall wave the sheaf before the eternal to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. The Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, we'll prove in a moment, it has to be, it can't be the high day Sabbath. It has to be the weekly Sabbath that they wave it the next day after. We'll prove that when we get down to verse 15, 16. <clears throat> so it has to be a weekly Sabbath. And the wave sheaf had to be waved the day after that weekly Sabbath. Had to be a Sunday. Couldn't be any other day but a Sunday because of the count in 15 and 16 where he explains that. Can't be a Monday, can't be a Thursday, has to be a Sunday for all the scriptures to fit together. Can't be any day but Sunday. And he shall offer that day when you wave the sheep and he land without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering and then other meal offerings here it says. In uh, verse 14, you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering to your God. Now that offering consisted of two things. Same day was the wave sheaf and these other offerings he's mentioned in these verses. They're both mentioned on the same day. Now, they were not to eat the bread of the land, the produce of the land, until that sheaf had been waved. Is that clear? I think we made it clear last week. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Now let's see that it had to be on a Sunday following a weekly Sabbath. And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So it was a Sabbath followed the next day by a wave offering, or a wave sheaf. <clears throat> Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Not seven weeks, beginning on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday, but you count seven Sabbaths, and then the next day, seven Sabbaths shall be complete, even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days. So it's clear it has to be a fifty-day count, right? It has to include seven Sabbaths, and the day after a weekly Sabbath then, is a Sunday. So the Sabbath in question here in verse 11 has to be a weekly Sabbath and the day after the sheep is waved and you count seven successive Sabbaths, which is 49 days, and the next day is Pentecost, the 50th day. Count 50. And the only way you can come up with 50 under this instruction, is to count from Sunday through Saturday seven times, and the next day is it. <clears throat> so that makes it clear that the morrow after the Sabbath in verse 11 is not a high Sabbath, a holy day Sabbath, uh, as in the first day of unleavened bread. It has to be a weekly Sabbath. 
think that should be clear to anybody with half a brain. Now, we can go to Joshua 5 and see what they did. God's instruction in Leviticus was very clear, and I think that Joshua understood it. Now, let's remember also that they were to wander 40 years, and God would bring them into the land uh, precisely after they had left. When did they leave? The night of Passover, Abib 14th. And they were officially recognized as being in the land on Abib 14th, Passover day, when they waved the sheep. And let's see if that's what they did. Uh, we won't get into the uh, circumcision thing right now. I'll cover that a little later. But in verse 10 of Joshua 5, The children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at evening, in the plains of Jericho. He said he rolled the reproach of Egypt off them in verse 9. His reason they called it Gilgal or rolling. So, they kept the Passover on the 14th. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. This has to be speaking of the Passover service, as we shall see later, not Passover day. That can easily be proved, really, in Leviticus 23, because it says on the morrow after the Sabbath. The Sabbath lasts what? 24 hours? It ends Saturday night. And Sunday begins then. And Sunday was the wave chief day. So the morrow after the Sabbath would have had to have been a Sunday. And they counted to 50 from there. So if they waived it on the morrow after the Passover, it was also the morrow after the Sabbath. Now somebody says, well, Passover has to be a 24-hour day. It is. All of the 14th was Passover day. The evening part and the day part. The context requires here that they wave the sheaf on Passover day. Now some say, well, how could they wave the sheaf when he wasn't even dead yet? We'll get to that objection here in a little bit. I just want to show you what is in the Scripture, then we'll see what is not in the Scripture. Maybe I've already passed over part of that. Now, it had to be the first Passover we saw last week that Caleb and Joshua were, were ineligible for the second Passover, having been circumcised coming out of Egypt. The women were not uh, eligible for the second Passover because they didn't need to be circumcised in any case, so they would have been eligible. So it couldn't have been the second Passover. Some have tried to indicate that. Others have said, well, it's a possibility. No, it's not a possibility at all. Nor could it have been in a succeeding year. Somebody says, well, it wasn't that year. It was two or three or four years later, whatever, like Deuteronomy 12, and that instruction for a different time. No, it says in the end of verse 12, they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So you can't put it off a year or two or three or four where you would like for it to be. 
So, they had to have kept the Passover on a Saturday night at the end of the Sabbath in order to wave the sheaf the day after the Sabbath. And it had to have been also the first holy day that they waved it on. People say, well, the Jews say you can't wave it on a high day. We'll get to that as well. There is no room for any other explanation. It is an absolute assumption that it says you have to offer the wave sheaf the day after the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. I put that to you last week. Where does it say that? All right, we know what it did say now. So let's answer some of those objections. And let me make this statement. Please do not let the objections get in the way of the facts. We've just reviewed the facts of what God instructed and what they accordingly had to have done. That's what happened. Incontrovertible. There is no other explanation. People who say it had to be on uh, a, follow a Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread do not have a leg to stand on. That is a total assumption. Nowhere does the Scripture say that. And if they assume that, okay, if they assume that and then run with it and say it has to be the seventh, has to be the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, including when it falls on the last day of unleavened bread, putting the wave sheep outside, they are making an assumption there which the Bible does not say, and they do not have any explanation for the rest of this that contradicts that. All right, let's, let's look at that. First objection. Where does it say the wave sheaf had to be during the days of unleavened bread? It does not say that in so many words, does it? Where do you find a verse that says the wave sheaf has to be within the days of unleavened bread? It's not in there. All right, let's ask the next question. Where does it say that the Sabbath that you count from has to be in the days of unleavened bread? It doesn't say it in so many words. So either of those two scenarios are not stated in so many words, period. Are they? Can't find where either one of them is. Well, how are we going to come up with scriptural example to show which it is since you cannot have both? There is no way mathematically you can have the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread and the wave sheaf always occurring within unleavened bread. One of the two will always be outside the days of unleavened bread. So which one is it? Now we have to be able to prove this. Where else, other than right here, can you go to prove it? How about Psalm 23? 
Revelation 16? How about Genesis 2? Can't go there because it doesn't discuss it. Here, in Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5, are the only places it addresses the issue directly. So somewhere within this context, it has to make it understandable. It has to make a delineation of which is which. Either wave sheath must always fall automatically within the Days of Unleavened Bread, or the Sabbath you count from must always occur within the Days of Unleavened Bread. Now, which does this context prove? This is the beginning of a cycle that would go on and on and on. And I submit to you that God used the odd year when you would have a Saturday night Passover to prove whether the Sabbath or the wave sheath has to always come within unleavened bread. If it's not here, it's nowhere. And if it's not here, then God hasn't shown us, and it's all guesswork. It's all assumption. I think we've already seen the answer, actually, to that. You wave it on the morrow after the Sabbath, verse 11. Then when you go to verses 15 and 16, it shows you how to do the whole count, and it has to start a day after a weekly Sabbath, and go for seven Sabbaths, and then the 50th day is Pentecost. So that's the way that it has to be. And that was, had to be a Saturday night since you wave it on a Sunday. So that proves the Sabbath you counted from that year had to be the Sabbath just prior to the Passover service. There's no room in here for anything else. Now, if that be the case, and it is, then the wave sheaf will always automatically fall within the Days of Unleavened Bread. Because he shows you can count from the Sabbath just prior to the Days of Unleavened Bread. And if you can do that, and he did do that, then the wave sheaf would have fallen on this, I mean, the wave sheaf would fall the next day and would always be within the Days of Unleavened Bread. Because you never start counting from the Sabbath on the seventh day of unleavened bread, putting the wave sheep outside. He shows right here you start counting from the one just before the first day of unleavened bread. So that proves it right there. By example. Doesn't say either one in so many words, but by example, it shows that's the only way it could be. So that's the facts. <clears throat> I think I covered that. Uh, didn't have anything else written here. Keep in mind, you can not always consider just what man did. Always be willing to consider what God may have done. God may have fixed some things where people have made some objections. Now, the objection, uh, 
could come up and has. How could he be waved via the sheath before he died or was resurrected? So if you have a Saturday night Passover and you wave the sheep on Sunday morning and he didn't die in that particular sequence until Sunday afternoon, how could he be waved before he even died? Good question. It has an answer. Let me give you several reasons scripturally that that can be. First of all, Revelation 13.8, which states that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 13.8. He was as good as dead before Adam and Eve ever breathed their first breath. The Father and He who would become the Son decided long before Adam and Eve were formed, that once man was created, man would sin. It was inevitable. They knew what was coming. They're not so stupid that they could figure out, couldn't figure out, that if you make a light bulb and you turn it on, it will light up. Okay? They were not so stupid that they figured they could put man on earth give him a brain and the poles of the flesh and have him not sin. It was inevitable. They knew it would happen. <clears throat> so he was slain before man ever existed. Before there ever was sin that needed to be redeemed. Now, how out of, how out of order is that? Why do you need a Savior before there's ever been a sin? Because they knew there was going to be a sin. So he states, He was slain before the foundation of the world, before ever there was a sin. <clears throat> now, another point. Do you realize, maybe you haven't thought of it, that we always, every year that goes by, Observe the Passover and his death before it ever happens. We keep it at the beginning of the 14th, whatever day it falls on. And he didn't die until the next afternoon and was buried before sundown. So God shows right there that that is not a problem. We can use the word celebrate. It's not really. It's a memorial it's an observance before the fact ever occurs. Do it every year. And we're meant to. I think I turned to 1 Corinthians 11 last week. I'll go there again and let's reiterate that. 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 23. For I have received of the eternal that which also I delivered to you. He told me, and I told you, here's what happened. That the Lord Emmanuel, we say, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Same as in italics, but you don't need it. The night in which he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And the cup and so on. He did it on the beginning of the 14th. These people were doing it at the beginning of the 14th, just as he had, and he set the example that we should follow in his steps. And they did it at the beginning of the 14th, that first Passover in Exodus 12. Right after sundown, beginning uh, Passover day. <clears throat> so that's the way it is to be done. Celebrated or observed before he even died. So there's precedence for that. Now, this objection also includes how could that have happened, but it hasn't been thought through. Do you realize that if you had a Wednesday night Passover, a Thursday night Passover, a Friday night Passover, or in this case, a Saturday night Passover, the sequence of what happened on the week that he died would still all be messed up and he would be waived before he even was resurrected? Killed or resurrected in the case of the Saturday night. Case of Wednesday night. Okay? You have the Passover Wednesday evening. That means he would have been killed on Thursday afternoon. Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, he would have been resurrected. The wave sheath would have been offered Sunday morning. So clear back to Wednesday. If you have a Wednesday night Passover, things are out of sequence. And Thursday and Friday make it worse, and Saturday's even worse. But he did set it up to happen most of the time on the Sunday after the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. And he gives an example of what you do when there is an exception to that which comes on a Saturday night or the beginning of Sunday, if you will. Do most of us believe that in the year Christ actually died, they had a Wednesday Passover? I think in the church of God that is assumed. No, that's not so. Technically, maybe it is. But the night that Christ was betrayed, that week was a Tuesday evening. Had to be a Tuesday evening, not Wednesday evening. Count it out. Passover service, beginning of 14th Abib, Tuesday evening. Killed Wednesday afternoon, the next day. Stayed in the tomb three days. Matthew 12, 39 through 40 says, even as Jonas. And it says, and it specifies three days and three nights. So there would be no confusion as to what a day was or a day and a night was. That's important here in a little bit. Seventy-two hours, three days and three nights. So Tuesday evening Passover, Wednesday afternoon crucifixion, Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, when he was resurrected. <clears throat> So it was a Tuesday evening Passover. 
Now, technically, it was Wednesday. Follow? It was Tuesday evening, but it was Wednesday. Wednesday began at sundown Tuesday. So it was the beginning of Wednesday Passover, which is the same thing as Tuesday evening, but there's a transition there. So he was killed at the beginning of Abib 14. I mean, we keep the Passover the beginning of Abib 14, and he was killed the afternoon of the next day, the morrow after the Passover. Now, I want to, I was going to put something first. I want to skip back here and put it in here now and then uh, do the other later. Let's ask the question then, could the wave sheaf come on Passover day? First day of unleavened bread. Could it come then? Show me something in the Bible that says it cannot. Anybody? Give me a scriptural reference. Anybody, anywhere, that says the wave chief cannot be waved on the first day of unleavened bread. Can't find it because it's not there. So what authority, so-called, does anyone use to say that it couldn't be? The Jews. The Jews, they say, say you can't have the wave sheaf offered on the holy day, the first day of unleavened bread. The Jews also were, say we're supposed to keep Sivan 6 as Pentecost, but you don't count from Sabbath to Sabbath seven weeks. Whatever day of the week Sivan 6 falls on is when they say you keep Pentecost. The Jews also postpone God's holy days. They don't like the day the sun and moon say they should come. The Jews did not keep the Old Testament. They do not even recognize that Christ is the wave sheep because they don't recognize Him as the Son of God. They don't have any understanding about anything much. Now, what did Christ call the teachings, the doctrines of the Pharisees? Doctrines of devils. They had the Old Testament and did not follow it. Romans 3 says, what advantage did the Jews have? They had the oracles, the sayings of God. People quote that, and then they say, well, the Jews are always right. They don't read the rest of the chapter. Read the rest of Romans 3 while you're at it. And Paul calls them just about the same thing Christ did. Snakes. Whitened walls. The Jews are not authorities on anything. The Bible is. And the Jews didn't follow the Old Testament as attested to by Christ. And they haven't followed anything in the New Testament. So how can you use them for an authority? You can't. Objection removed. Could it come on Passover day? 
Why not? If you had a Saturday evening, that is technically beginning of Sunday, Passover, the wave chief had to be offered the day after Passover, which would be Sunday. Now, it clearly shows it had to be Sunday. Some have reasoned that, well, you you must have a 24-hour day. So the morrow after the Sabbath would somehow come out on a Monday. If they did it on the morrow after the Sabbath, you had to count all of the first day of unleavened bread, and then the next day would be Monday. That doesn't work at all. It's, if it's tomorrow after the Sabbath, it had to be Sunday, okay? Because it's proven it had to be a weekly Sabbath. Now, so there is a little confusion there. Can the morrow after the Sabbath mean Sunday? Yeah, why not? Confusion comes because they say, well, in the Passover paper you say that we had the Passover service and the next day was the whole day, 24 hours, was Passover day. Absolutely, correct, I did say that, and that's true. And it's true here too. You had the weekly Sabbath, and the morrow after was Sunday. Okay? And it says they waived it on the day after the Sabbath. Now, can the morrow after the Sabbath, or the, can morrow only mean half a day in usage? Yes, it can. If you and I go to dinner tonight, and we leave each other at 10 o'clock after sundown, and I say, I'll see you in the morning. You know, and I know, that's Sunday morning. It's tomorrow after we had dinner on Saturday night. Now, technically, it's not tomorrow, because at 10 o'clock Saturday night, it was already Sunday. See what I mean? But we still call it the morrow, or tomorrow, or tomorrow morning. Technically, we're already there. Now, I can prove that happened in Christ's day. What did the Scripture say? It said that they went early, while it was yet dark, to the tomb. Early when? As it dawned toward the first day of the week. Technically speaking, it had been the first day of the week since sundown, Saturday night. But the Scripture says it was dawning toward the first day of the week. Obviously, it takes into account that he was resurrected Saturday afternoon and the first day of the week began, which was Sunday, but it was still dawning toward the first day of the week. So he's obviously there means the daylight portion. The morrow after the Sabbath in that case would be Sunday morning as it dawned toward it. Dawn, sun coming up. We use that expression all the time. See you tomorrow morning. And it's already sundown when we say it. It's a technicality, and it doesn't violate it. 
And I'm going to show you now how it doesn't violate it. I looked up the Hebrew words. I don't do this very often, but we're told not to strive over words. But sometimes looking up the Hebrew and the Greek can shed some light on a subject. I'm not saying Passover is suddenly a half day long. But, you, but they, in the context, it had to be referring to the Passover service, not the whole day of Passover. For it to happen on a Sunday, which it clearly shows, they had to have been referring to Passover service. We do that too. When's Passover this year? We're not talking about the seven days. We're talking about the Passover service. So there can be confusion of terms there and definitions, but we all understand what we're talking about. When do we partake of the Passover? Or when is the Passover? Same question. The day, the next day, in that sense, is understood. You and I understand we have the Passover service, but the whole 24-hour period is the day of the Passover or Passover day. Anybody that doesn't understand how the Passover operates would have problems with that, but that's their problem. I explained that very carefully. The Hebrew and the Greek both allow for speaking of the evening before and referencing the next daylight is the morrow, and it's not limited to a 24-hour day in that usage. Uh, I have that right here in an email that I wrote this past week. I'm going, to, I'm going to read this to you. I said, no, we had a Saturday evening Passover, as I explained. The weekly Sabbath was the 13th Abib. The 14th began at sundown Saturday night, which is when we had the Passover service. Sunday was in Passover day, still the 14th. Sunday was the day the wave sheaf was offered on the morrow after the Passover the evening before. The morrow after the Sabbath, the morrow after the Passover service. On the morrow, or next day, can mean a whole new 24-hour period, or it can mean a night with the daylight, the next daylight, meaning on the morrow or the next daylight portion. That's why he explained carefully in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, that he wasn't using that usage to explain how long he would be in the tomb. He said three days and three nights. Not two nights and three days, or three days and two nights, but the morning, or the, the daylight and the dark portion of three days. Three 24-hour periods. And that implies, clearly that when we speak of tomorrow or day, we often refer to just the daylight portion. That's very common. Always has been. All right. God uses the same manner of expression in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. A few are listed below. Context has to decide the use. Context is always key to understanding God's Word. He uses it both ways. All right, uh, the same Hebrew word, 4283, 
depending on context, can mean a 24-hour period, which it does many places in the King James Version, or it can mean the next daylight period following the night. It can mean either one. Good examples of that usage are Genesis 19.34, Numbers 11.32. I guess I better go back and read those. Genesis 19.34. Same word as used there in Leviticus 23. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also. So the daughters got lot drunk one night, and it was the next day. Technically it wasn't. It was the next daylight portion to show. So on that daylight portion, they says, let's do that again tonight to Lot. So it clearly shows that even though technically the evening before at sundown began the day, it was already night, they did this at night, and the next day, it was the next daylight portion. Very clear. Uh, Numbers 11. Here, verse 32. Numbers 11. And the people stood up all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten, and so on. So this is a continuous thing. The people stood all that day, and all that night, and all the next day. So do you have three 24-hour periods there? No. You have the day. Then you have the night, and then you have the next day. Daylight, dark, daylight. And he uses the same word as is in Leviticus 23. Another one I won't turn for sake of time is 1 Samuel 30, 17. Same word used in Leviticus 23, 11, 15, and 16, and in Joshua 5, 11. That's Hebrew uh, 42:83. In the New Testament... Times were later, different language, different period of time. The uh, Greek word number 839, orion, can be used with the word hemera, with day understood. This is according to, I think it was Vine's expository. So it's understood that it's the night and the next day is understood. Examples are Acts 4.3, Luke 10.35. Let's look at those. Acts 4, 3 first. This word can mean 24 hours. It can also mean the day following the night portion of the same day. Chapter 4. They laid hands on them, verse 3, and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. So the evening had come, the sun had gone down, And they held them until the next day. Does that mean they held them all through the next daylight portion, all the next night, and then turned them loose two days later? No. Doesn't make any sense at all. They took them at night, and the next day, 
was the next daylight portion. Very clear. Luke 10, verse 34, I think it is. 35. Luke 10, verse 35. Uh, and on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said to him, Take care of him, and whatsoever you spend more, when I come again, I will repay you. So here was this situation of the, uh, of the Good Samaritan. This guy had been stripped off. And he took him to the inn that night, stayed the night, okay? And then it refers to it, is on the morrow. Was it a day and a half later? No. It was on the morrow. Took him in at night, spent the night, and on the morrow he departed, the next daylight period. So it can clearly be used in Hebrew or Greek to mean in the morning or on the morrow of the same technical 24-hour period. So I'm not saying suddenly Passover is only half a day. Passover day was 24 hours. But the Hebrew allows you to say, Passover service and on the morrow would be Sunday, not Monday. So it's a technicality, but it works either way. He obviously was referring to the Passover service because the context requires that. Not Passover day, but Passover service. Do you have anything else on that? I think that should cover that particular point. On the morrow was Sunday. Now I want to go. I moved that in my notes. Now I'm lost here for a minute until I find out where I am. Okay, here's where here's where I should be. Now, what about the eighth day? This one, I hadn't really had the answer to uh, in my own mind. Not that the question was, actually, I don't know that it was even asked. But in my own mind, I had thought, well, if you did always use the Sabbath within the Days of Unleavened Bread, and the wave sheet fell on the day after, that would be the eighth day. And that would account for the people in the last great day, or the great white throne judgment. So... Why wouldn't that be okay? They need covered too. Well, the problem is, it would never go back and cover the people in the first thousand years, but in that case, it would cover the people in the last great day, or the great white throne judgment, the eighth day. See what I mean? But that is not necessary. There in uh, Revelation 20, it says... The rest of the, it's about the first resurrection, and it says, The rest of the dead live not till a thousand years were finished. Speaking of the millennium. <coughs> now, Herbert Armstrong always said, and he was correct, the plan of God covers 7,000 years. That's all. Just 7,000 years. Last great day is not included. It was tacked on to the Feast of Tabernacles. Even here in Leviticus 23, it talks about keep it seven, seven days, and even the eighth is a holy day. Now, why does it put it that way? And how would this affect unleavened bread and the Sabbath 
and the wave chief at all? Well, the answer is, it wouldn't. Now, here's why. All those people born in the 7,000 years of the plan itself, six days, one day, 6,000 years, 1,000 years, total of seven. Every human being who will have been born at the end of the 7,000 years will have been born during that 7,000 years. First thousand, second thousand, fourth, fifth, sixth thousand. But within that 7,000 year plan. They may have died as a baby. They may have died as an old man who didn't know the truth. They have not had a chance at salvation and a final judgment. That's why he calls it the great white throne judgment at the end of the 7,000 years, end of the millennium. Those people are rooted in the first 7,000 years. They had their beginning there. We've all known that. So they are covered by the sacrifice of Christ, which cycles through the first 7,000 years, He being waived for people who existed within that 7,000 years. And those people in the great white throne judgment who are resurrected, the rest of the dead, at the end of 7,000 years, will have already existed within the 7,000. So they are covered within the plan of God, having been born during that period of time. Now somebody might get technical again and say, well, what about those conceived that weren't born? That isn't the point here. God may consider you a human being that will be resurrected from the time of conception. Mankind tries to make their judgment. Does it come from time that you were nothing but mucus? Does it come from three months or four, six months or nine months? Or when you have the first breath? The Bible does not truly answer that, and it's God's judgment. Now, if you're not a human being until you draw the breath of life, then maybe abortion would be okay. But I can't see any way that abortion is okay. Therefore, God may, for you who have had miscarriages, uh, resurrect those babies and make them a part because they were born, or scheduled at least to be born, within that 7,000 years. So that may not be a problem, but that's a technicality. Uh, when I say people born during that time, I'm speaking in general terms of people who came from that period of time. Let's, let's understand the point here. So, the wave chief does not need to cover the eighth day, or the last great day, the great white throne judgment, because those people are already covered since they were born during the first 7,000 years at some time. Already covered as it cycles through all seven of the days. Now, let's go to one of the bigger objections, which consists really of two things. <clears throat> one is in Exodus 23.16. And here I think we're going to understand some things spiritually that perhaps we have not ever addressed, and which I did not last week but I think uh, clearly give us an answer as to how 
what Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 say happened. They say it, it's provable, there's no other way around it. So the objections from these other scriptures have to have some kind of explanation as to how what happened could have happened and did happen. That's what they have to explain. So let's go first of all to Exodus 23. Uh, verse 16. The feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, so this is speaking specifically of the Pentecost season, <laughs> which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, feast of tabernacles, when you have gathered in your labors out of the field. So here he's explaining the holy days, starting in verse 15. Three times you'll come and keep a feast before me. And he explains when, and that year by year, they would bring what they had planted and what they had harvested. Early harvest would be uh, for Pentecost. Late harvest would be the festivals in the fall. So that's what he's speaking of. And year by year, that is what they were to do. Okay? I accept that. I have no problem with that. The objection that people make is, when Israel came into the land, crossed the Jordan, they had not planted that crop, so it was not their crop, and therefore it did not qualify, so they couldn't have done what the Scriptures clearly say they did do. Let's take one more to add to that. Leviticus 22, just before what we're reading here in 23. He's talking here about these offerings had to be holy, they had to be good, without blemish, whether they were uh, animal sacrifices or plant sacrifices, whatever they might be. But it says here in verse 25, and this is the one that is brought up, Neither from a stranger's hand shall you offer the bread of your God of any of these, because their corruption is in them, and blemishes be in them, they shall not be accepted for you. So the objection here is that the Canaanites had planted this crop, and if they were to take it from the Canaanites' hand, it would not be acceptable to God. Point well taken. What's the answer? What's the answer to both of these? What you plant, what you reap... And don't take your offerings from a stranger's hand. Anybody care to mesh that together with what we've read in Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5? That says what they did when they went in, and it was that year, and it was that Passover. So how do you do this? I think the answer is really quite simple. What did they have to offer? Nothing. They had nothing to offer. And yet when he said, when you come into the land, you are to offer this wave sheath, and you are to offer an offering of lambs and of plants. But they, of themselves, had nothing. How were they going to make an offering? Good question. 
They were an unholy people, were they not? They had been circumcised coming out of Egypt, Exodus 12:48, and God had said, if you have strangers among you, they cannot take the Passover unless they too are circumcised and become a part of a holy nation. God has been making Gentiles holy for a long, long time now. Did in Exodus 12. Go to Romans 11. Gentiles are offered salvation and to be part of the bride of Christ just as much as a born, blood, physical Israelite. No difference whatsoever in terms of spiritual value. Throw all your racism in the ash can. God has been doing this for a long time. I suspect that there were still Gentiles of the mixed multitude who came with them out of Mitzrayim. They had circumcised them then, and they had lived among Israel ever after, and they had had children, just like the born blood Israelites. Therefore, they must have still been there and remained when Joshua circumcised all Israel, and they too were circumcised so they could take care, could partake of the Passover. Are you going to tell me that those Gentiles that were circumcised coming out of Egypt never had children? I don't believe that one. They're quite capable of having children, and I'm sure they did. Probably lots of them. So they had to be circumcised just like Israel to make them holy. Consider this. Israel, according to Scripture, was baptized in the Red Sea. Right? I don't think I have to go there. You all know that. God likened it, or used it as a symbol of baptism, because they went down under the water. Well, through it technically, if you want to be technical again. They went through it. Between it. But baptism is by immersion... And God uses the symbolism they were immersed. They didn't get wet, and they walked between, but he still used the symbolism that they were baptized there. They were then circumcised and set aside as a holy people. Now, using that example, they came to the Jordan River 40 years later, and I submit to you, they were baptized in the Jordan. It backed up the same way the Red Sea backed up. They crossed over dry shot. So if God parting the water and making them able to go through it, set aside the Israel's coming, Israelites coming out of Mitzrayim and the Gentiles with them, the same thing would have been true in crossing the River Jordan, which again was water, which God miraculously backed up so that they could pass over. Same symbolism would be there. And what did God do immediately thereafter? Tenth day of the month of Abib had them circumcised. Same scenario as in coming out of Mitzrayim and to the day when they were officially accepted. What was God doing there? Were they holy as a people? No. They had to be baptized of the Jordan. 
Then they had to be physically circumcised to set them aside as a holy nation. God saw to it that that happened. Now, what did they have to offer God? Lambs without blemish? The corn of the land? No, it was not theirs. And they couldn't wave the sheep, or they couldn't eat of the food of the land until they had offered the wave sheep. God is asking them to do something that was impossible for them to do. They could not fulfill Exodus 23.16 by offering something that they had planted or harvested. They could not offer anything that a stranger might have given them. That was forbidden. They had nothing, and I submit to you again, the Canaanites did not give them anything to offer. What did the Canaanites give Israel? Nothing. They didn't give them anything. Follow? They didn't give them the land. They didn't give them their holiness. They didn't give them the crops. They didn't give them their houses. They didn't give them squat. Nothing. You know who did? God did. Remember Abraham? He was told to take an offering to God. And he was told to take Isaac, his son, and offer him as a burnt offering before God. In that particular case, what God had told Isaac to offer, God withdrew. He said, turn him loose. You know where that put Abraham? Nothing to offer. He had nothing to offer God after coming all that way out there to Mount Moriah. God gave him an offering to give to God. Abraham turned around and there was a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham could not comply with what God had asked him to do because what God had asked him to offer, God withdrew. So here's Abraham sitting, what do I give you for an offering? I don't have anything. All I had was my son and you, and you said don't offer him. How do I give you an offering? Oh, you provided one for me. A gift from God. What do you have to offer God? Not much of anything, really. When you were out in this world, Believing whatever you believed, and God began to give you the truth. And He said, Come to me and follow my truths. What did you have to offer? You weren't holy. You were a sinner, like the rest of the world, in body and in mind. Break one, you've broken them all. So every one of us was an unholy, rotten, wretched sinner. Every last one. They have all sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. 
We had absolutely nothing to offer God, brethren. Nothing. So what did he do? He brought us to a knowledge of some truth, offered us baptism and the laying on of hands to receive his spirit. Now we had something. But what of our good works did we have to offer God? Circumcision is of the heart. And the heart must be fully circumcised. God will not take half-hearted circumcision of the heart. That's why you and I have been spewed out of his mouth. When you circumcise a baby boy, do you cut it half off? And leave it hanging? No. You circumcise the whole foreskin. You take it all off. When you are circumcised of heart, you have to be completely circumcised of heart. Take all the nasty out. Take all the deception and the sin out. And become holy. Holy circumcised. And holy is in terms of holiness. But what do we have to offer God? Still nothing. The only thing we can offer is Romans 12.1. Our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's all we have to offer Him. Now when He brought them through the Red Sea, and not the Red Sea, the, the River Jordan, and baptized that group in water, they were then fully circumcised, set aside, and what did they at that point have to offer God? Nothing but themselves set aside or sanctified as a holy people. Let's go for a moment to Second Peter 2 and see that this is indeed correct. Second Peter 2, verse 9. Now, oh, wait a minute, maybe I wanted First Peter. Yeah, First Peter 2, verse 9. Well, let's go in verse 8. Christ was made a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Human beings were appointed to disobedience. That's why Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a redeemed or purchased people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we were nothing and had nothing to offer. And God chose us out, baptized us, circumcised us of the heart, and that is a continuing process of conversion. And we have ourselves to offer, and that's all. So there they stood, Joshua, having been circumcised and nothing to offer. As I said, the Canaanites gave them no land, they gave them no food, they gave them no homes. 
What did God give them? He started out by giving them baptism and holiness through circumcision. Two gifts. Then he gave them the land. Whose land was it? It was his land. Then the Canaanites had had that land. Who took it away from them? Not the Israelites. God did. Hadn't he said, year by year, I'll drive them out before you. Right after this, when they'd kept the Passover and all, they went to Jericho. Did they besiege the city? No. They marched around it, as God said. Did they cause the walls to fall down by putting ropes over them and pulling? No. <clears throat> when God was ready, He says, blow the trumpets and the walls will all come tumbling down. God gave them the city. The Canaanites did not. They went in and finished them off, but it was all over. God gave them everything there. Let me ask you a question. If something unclean passes through God's hands, does it become clean or holy? Now, Haggai says that won't work with men. He says if the priest touches something unclean, will it become clean? No. Man cannot cleanse anything, but God can. Was Abraham standing on holy ground when he saw the bush burning over there? No. When he got there, he was told, the ground you are standing on is holy ground. What made it holy? That it was in the land of Midian? That didn't make it holy. What made it holy was God's presence. When God touches something, it doesn't become unclean. If it is unclean, it becomes clean. They were unclean, wandering 40 years. God cleansed them and set them apart as holy through circumcision. We were unclean, and God's hand reached out and touched us and made us clean. Now, the land was not holy land. It was promised land. It was land that was promised but not yet made holy. What made it holy? God coming there running the unclean out, and creating holiness by His presence, and, and changing them from unclean to clean, from unholy to holy. So He made the land holy. They try to call the Middle East the Holy Land. It ain't Holy Land. God isn't there. It's Babylon and confusion. This is the promised land. Christ said in, in Zechariah 2, He's going to come and dwell with us in it. Then it will become holy land. Not just promised, but holy. He's here dwelling in us, making us holy by His presence. And we asked for it at the beginning of the service. Come be with us. We invited Him to come help make us holy. So if God could cleanse and make holy a bunch of murmuring, complaining, griping Israelites... He could make the land holy 
by His presence there, He could also take the crop or the animals that those people had planted themselves, take it into His hands, and give it to Israel as a gift. God was the one who gave Israel something to offer. It was not the Canaanites. God did it. He took that which was unholy that the Canaanites had planted away from them, which means it was then in his possession, and said, here is an offering for you to give. You don't have one. I'm giving you one. Just like he gave Abraham the ram. You have nothing to offer. I'm going to give you one. So they did not take it from a stranger's hand. They didn't have to plant it because God made a gift to them when they were in a position they had nothing to offer. He had told them, you are to give me this offering when you come into the land. And it tells us in Leviticus 23 and Joshua very, 5 very clearly what they did do. So if they were insufficient by being unclean, he cleansed them with circumcision. If they had nothing to offer, he took something, made it holy, and gave it to them to offer him. They did not take it from the Canaanites' hand. They did not take it from the Canaanites' land. That was his land then. That was his crop then. And he made it available to them, having made it holy. So they were able to do what God had commanded them in Leviticus 23 to do. And Joshua saw that it was carried out. And God made it possible for them to give an offering when they had nothing that wasn't unclean. And they didn't eat of the produce of that land until they had waved the sheep, as made very clear in Joshua 5, 11, and 12. A point was made that, well, they were already eating of the land before they ever crossed the river. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. They weren't in the land of Canaan. And that's the land they were not to partake of what was there until they had offered the sheep. Before they crossed the river, anything was fair game. Anything that was clean. I said it last week. Dandelions, pine nuts, it didn't matter. They had the manna, they had the quail, but they were never forbidden to eat anything that they might come across during that wilderness journey. They could. But when they crossed that river, they weren't to touch anything until that wave sheaf had been offered. And since they offered it, on the morrow after the Passover, they had waved the sheaf very clearly. Joshua would have, would have made absolutely certain of that. So, the scriptures that are brought up as objections are not objections when you understand what God did for them. I see no objection. They didn't take from the hand of a stranger. They offered an offering that God provided, not the Canaanites. You and I, again, have nothing to offer God except that which He gives us.
We were carnal. We were deceitful. We were selfish. We had no treasures in heaven. God gave us His Spirit. God gave us a new life in the Spirit to walk in. And all we have to offer now is the gift that He gave us, our bodies as a living sacrifice. God has given us everything we need to offer to Him. That's all He wants, is us, our hearts, our minds. He is making us holy. He has already designated us as holy and set aside. Second Peter 2.10. 1 Peter 2.10, excuse me. Does that mean we're perfectly holy? No. But in his mind, he speaks of the things that are not as if they already were. So any objections from other scriptures to actually what happened in Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5, I think, can easily be swept away by having things pass through the hand of God, just as you and I have passed through the hand of God and are now acceptable to him. And we weren't acceptable before, just as what the Canaanites had had there, if Israel had taken it on their own, it would have been unacceptable. But since God went in, took over the land, and gave it to them, He had made it holy. I hope that answers those objections. It does in my mind. God always provides whatever we need to do what He asks us to do. He had told them what to do. They obviously did it. Therefore, He must have provided a means whereby it could legally happen. And God is above everything else. Yeah, you can have something blemished. You can have it unclean, just like you and I were. God can clean it up, fix it, and make it holy just as he is with us. And that's what he did there.